Welcome to Counter Stories, a program by people of color for people of color and everyone else. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and vice president of programming at Ampers. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner of the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And Luz Maria Frias cannot join us today following a loss in her family. And we want her to know we're thinking of her and we love her. And hopefully we'll have her back with us again soon. Um, joining us is Amelia, who has been a guest with us before and she will be sitting in. So I'll have Amelia introduce herself. My name is Emilia Gonzalez-Avalos. I am a nonprofit operator. I am a mother uh, of three, a grandmother of two, and I am an immigrant to Minnesota from Mexico City. And our guest this week, a very special guest, I'll have her introduce herself as well. Well, good afternoon, Anpati Washte, Gracie Horn, Imachiapie, Sisitawan Wakpektua Oyante, Naku Hunkpapa Oyate. Southside Minneapolis, Edward T. Hello, everybody. My name is Gracie Horn. My people are the Sisseton Wapton Nation. Um, my great grandmother was from Standing Rock Nation, based out of North Dakota. Um, my grandmother on my mother's side, my grandmother's mother was from Sioux Valley, Canada. Um, and I currently reside in South Minneapolis. Thanks for joining us, Gracie. Um, today's topic is is new, I think, for most of us here um, in the room. And it's just something that I've been seeing pop up on my social media a lot in the last year um, or so. And so um, we want to talk about pretendians. And I think it pretty much is self-explanatory <laughs> about, you know, what that term means. Um, but Gracie, if you could kind of just give us a definition of what pretendian means. Yeah, and I don't even know if there's like a, a, a real definition, you know, because I feel like it's something, it's a topic that has definitely been happening. This this word has definitely been floating around for a while. I mean, I think I, when I think about pretendians, I think about um, uh, the, the crying Indian who was famously Italian. Um, I think about all of the Western shows, the black and white shows with the, the Plains Indian motifs and, and they're wearing, uh, Native American garb. Those, those were all Italians or from other nations. So I guess for me, um, I can only really go off of my own definition. And that is somebody that is not, uh, of Native American, is not Native American from the U.S. Um, or other nations, because we also do uh, recognize Canada and we also do recognize um, south of the border. But for us, um, we use native specifically for here in the U.S. Um, and I guess like, this person profit, profits and exploits native culture, native identity, native art, native way of life, um, anything, anything to really just make themselves money. Um, sometimes in the past, exploitation could be lucrative for funds or can be also lucrative for other things as well. Um, it's not to say, I mean, we just got 
you know, a lot of things, um, trauma that has happened in our communities. And sometimes this puts our own community members in vulnerable positions. So it's also this person that, that can um, go after community members and other, and other exploits. You know, Gracie, I think on a previous show, um, we've, we've touched on parts of what you described. I think that, um, help me out here, Anthony. I, you know, years ago we did a piece on that, um, white woman out, out East, I believe, or no, out West who was, um, who, who claimed, yeah, I think she, she, she oh, claimed. talking about Rachel Dolezal. Yeah, yeah, she claimed to be black. Who, who has now changed her name to Nkechi something to just <laughs> oh. further keep oh, messing with that. But during wow. that discussion, there also, there was an incident that happened in Indian country with a woman who um, was, I believe she was um, an educator who claimed to be native. And it came out that she in, indeed was not. And much to what Gracie said, this individual had had benefited from the fact of claiming that she was indigenous, that she was native. It added to her narrative, and I think it added to the work that she was putting out when, in fact, she was not. And um, Consulting gigs and, exactly. and all these kinds of things. Yep. Exactly. And so I, I know that in, in our community, there are individuals who, um, you know, across the horizon who, who have been like false, I'm trying to think of good words here, false, false prophets or, or shaman or fake or, as hell. Like, come, all yeah, of them. You know what I mean? Cause, <laughs> cause my, my uncle was a healer. Okay, and 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 individuals have pretended to be native, pretended to be indigenous. Um, I think there was a and I and correct me, Grace. I think there was an incident um, around that Burning Man kind of ceremony or whatever, where individuals claim to be indigenous and they create these whole two three day ceremonies uh, that are you know fake as hell. Excuse my language, but. <laughs> and you know, uh, claiming to heal people. I mean, all kinds of stuff. I mean, we, you know, it, so I think that you know, in in our community, it, it it's a touchy subject because our lives are so hard, you know, for for um, for everything that we've got to kind of pull up our bootstraps and 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 go the whole nine yards. You know, we're against the wall here in the in in our own land. And then we got to contend with others who pretend to be us in order to benefit off our trauma and off our life. And it's tough. Yeah. And I think the other factor is, is of it is um, unlike uh, Rachel Dozel and the black community, when it comes to native appropriators, the other factor of this is that we have a political status and that political status impacts um, our, I guess, what we have, our agreements with the United States. Um, since we're from here, we're not just an ethnic group. We're not just a cultural group. We are. We have a political status and that's because of our ceded territories and um, and just past treaties, if, if tribes even didn't choose to make treaties. 
um, with the with the United States. Uh, it's a little bit different in that way. Um, but it appropriation in general, I guess for me, like pretendians don't just don't just operate in the arts world. They operate in the academia world. They operate in the polit- pol- political world. Um, and they also operate in this new age, um, new, new age and new religion finding world. And I think all of them it's it's still uh, detrimental and damaging to our communities in many different ways. Um, I would say the biggest impacts are just um, probably from the academia and from the arts because these are to be a native artist. You're most of these families um, that are native artists. They provide for their family and this is their livelihood and their income statistically in in South Dakota um the median for income yearly income is 40,000 and these are households up to 6 people per, per house and this is with the the Oglala Nation in in Pine Ridge South Dakota we use those statistics through the First Peoples Fund in South Dakota because that kind of encapsulate what we're looking at. Um, there's differences of incomes for all different tribes, but that seems to be the median and what we use in as, as an example. So if you're taking away opportunities uh, for Native artists to to have an income or have a livelihood, that that um, that really impacts their life. It, it's it's I think what happens in the U.S., especially in Minnesota, is that people have these perceptions of us that just because we have a political status that we might have more kickbacks. Um, I think the most common thing that I've heard is that we don't have to pay our taxes or that we belong, all of us belong to a gaming tribe that somehow we're like getting all this free money somewhere or that um all of our college is is paid for which it is not and so um so as of being a dakota person um historically in minnesota we were exiled outside of our home territory in 1863 after the dakota uprising of 1862 after the mass execution in mankato minnesota um, that that took the lives of 38 Dakota men and boys, and um, and I and I guess from that there we only have four remaining Minnesota Dakota tribes. The rest of us belong to a diaspora, and that diaspora is in South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, and Wyoming, uh, parts of Wyoming and Canada. And so we, when you belong to that diaspora, that means that you don't have connection to your ancestral homes. There have been like complete, almost complete art forms lost to belonging to this diaspora because you're not um, within your ancestral home. You don't um, have the connection. We call it place-based art. Like if there, there used to be Dakota ceramics, we don't really have, it's not a strong um uh, art field for us anymore. That's a part of our loss. But also Dakota floral that was revitalized. Marlena Miles and uh, uh, and other Dakota artists have helped greatly to revitalize that art form for us. So we're coming from this point of 
um, being completely removed. And some of us came back to Minnesota, regardless of having a tribe here, regardless of having that infrastructure here in, in Minnesota. But growing up here, um, it, you feel invisible to that struggle. A lot of people didn't know that this was the, the, a Dakota ancestral homelands. Um, a lot of people didn't know about the Dakota uprising or they didn't understand that this was like during the same time as the civil war. A lot of people still don't. Yeah. And a lot of people still don't. Yeah. Yeah, and it feel you feel the sense of invisibility, you know, like if that was if that was a superpower, we'd take it, but it's only useful in some areas, I guess. But I guess like when it comes to appropriation and you have people that come in and use your story and use your narrative to benefit themselves, um, you know, it, it it's harder. It's it's very hard because most of us have relatives, well, all of us have relatives that had gone, undergone uh, extensive forms of assimilation. Um, my grandmother and my aunt and um, and the older generation past them had all gone to boarding school. And this was a total removal of identity in the 1930s and 40s. And even on, um, we'll, you'll see histories of uh forced sterilization and um and and now we're seeing other other forms of not sterilization but complete generations missing from the missing and murdered indigenous women um which has been impacted us generationally not just in the US but but other parts and 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 um Canada as well as I you know consider Mexico the same thing there's a lot of of um, MMIW down south as well. So it doesn't just impact us here and, and feeling that loss. So when when an appropriator comes or a pretendian comes in, um, it, it's just kind of a matter of time of, of when they'll kind of be exposed or when the truth comes to light. I guess for me, I take it seriously mainly because I when it comes to spirituality, that's where I get really concerned about it. I'm concerned for the arts and I'm concerned about, um, artists not being supported and, um, and, and them growing their own arts entrepreneurship, um, their own businesses. However, when it comes to spirituality, that's a, that's a big thing. Um, in 2004, uh, the chief of the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota nation, chief Orville Looking Horse, came forward and made this um made this statement that there we weren't going to it wasn't going to be acceptable to sell ceremony or ex- exploit ceremony anymore our way of life this was right after that Sedona sweat lodge um that accident that happened in Sedona Arizona where this uh white new age instructor uh cultural guru or cult guru had accidentally um i guess taken the lives of some of the people that he brought into a sweat lodge and they died in there people that had paid to be in there and he did go to court and he was fined and he was um put in prison but it's acts like those where it's putting not just native people native vulnerable people at risk but also other nations, because I feel like when you're trying to 
find something and searching something, you don't really, you you just don't know who people really are. I've become a lot more critical um, and a lot more um, protective of my own space just because um, recently during Standing Rock, there was a man that infiltrated our system, I guess, of my mm. family and other families and saying that he was Clinkett native, um, native Alaskan. And, um, he was also Shoshone and he had been go- going to all these protests. His name was Red Wolf Pope and, and came to find out he was half, um, Spanish European descent and half Chinese. And his mother had been pretending to be Clinkett, a Clinkett native. And his dad was pretending to be Shoshone. And this guy was going in and perpetuating communities. He was going to um, protest all over um, Seattle, um, Minneapolis, St. Paul, New York, um, Standing Rock, North Dakota. He was going all over the place and he subsequently, um, the women that he perpetrated uh, filed charges and he's now sitting in prison in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and he's going to be extradited to Seattle, Washington. And this is, this is like forever these women are going to be impacted. Their, their children, um, the things that had happened to them. And so it's stuff like this where it's important to, it's not just exploiting money. It can be exploiting other, other way, women, children, um, elders. The only way that we as Native people could handle this is that if there's this inter, sectionality between us both because it's ha- it's not just happening to us it's happening in other communities as well i guess for me what i find interesting is that when pretendians have come into the academia world i feel like there's less repercussions when i see the the story with rachel dolzell um, and how I think the last article she said that she ha- still hasn't had a job in over like six to 10 years, you know, because of like, you know, what she did and the acts that she's done. Um, I look at how pretendian academics have kind of in some in- instances still found jobs after being, um, exposed. So for instance, dark myth Susan Taffreed, um, w- was forced out as a director of the school's Native American program over allegedly faking membership in the Eastern Delaware nation. Now in her case, she, um, stepped down in that position, but then she was hired in an even better. So she stepped up in her position. Today, she is now the assistant (laughs) dean of the undergraduate students at Dartmouth. So she was let go from her position um, and then went up, climbed, climbed up. There was other um, instances with uh, Carrie Barusa was ousted for her post as Canadians. This was in Canada and Canada's top Indigenous health health experts after her claims of membership in the Métis nations were debunked. Um, She still has a job. Uh, Most recently, Claudia Lawrence, who um, her Claudia was married to a Native man. Um, She 
was saying that she was Hopi and Assiniboine Sioux, and she had been writing articles. She had a, a very well-known article that was written about Native women, and um, she still has a job. This young woman, Corrine uh, Pereira, um, or Corrine Ostrich, um, she had a blog, and she was just known throughout Native country for being for being the auntie, you know, to everybody. Like she, she said that she was Lakota, Dutch, Indonesian, Swiss and Swiss and Portuguese. So she was claiming that she was multiracial. This is somebody that was featured in fashion magazines and had a successful blog and had been doing a lot of things in the community. And her story came to light um, last year. And so, um, and still, you know, like, uh, she's she's probably still employed somewhere today so it's these these type of stories where they do happen but they still have an existence after they've been ex- exposed and um and i guess for me just as like a just as an artist i the person that i that i like to reference a lot is um an individual named jimmy durham um he has now passed he passed away some years ago but jimmy durham was uh was a well-known cherokee artist um who's who's not cherokee but was saying that he was cherokee um, he was active in the American Indian movement. He was a part of the AIM House, AIM Treaty House in New York City. This was in the 80s. He had existed out there. He had wrote many things in that community in regards to treaty rights and native rights and land rights. And um, this guy was starting to get exposed after 1990 when the Indian Arts and Crafts Act had um, had had begun in 1990. It's a federal policy, a federal law. And he left. He was starting to get exposed and he left and he had moved um, internationally to Belgium and to other European countries and, and actually never came back, stayed However, he still operated as a Cherokee artist and still had many exhibitions after, um, after he left the U.S. Um, he, his, his, uh, CV, the, the, the amount of galleries that he participated in is like off the, off the wall. I think the last one, um, I'm trying to pull up the numbers, but I think the last exhibition that, he had done and he participated, it was in the millions of how much he got for his last exhibition. And although they were saying that he wasn't, you know, that he, you know, wasn't claiming to be Native anymore, most of the artwork was centralized in Native thought and Native beliefs. It, it definitely looked Native. And the curator um, that 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 helped um, his exhibition also wrote, I think the the main thing for artists is if you get a catalog or if you get an exhibition catalog, this is a book. It's a published size book that's forever has your your you know your intent, your artist statement and everything. That is stuff, literature that you know helps your career and it it's worth a lot of money when you get to that bracket or that caliber. Um, he, they spent a lot of money, um, publicizing 
you know, publicizing his works and and saying, you know, the things that he had been doing. And, and it was really just to say, it was really just for us, it was kind of a spit in the face when you can have put so much money into, you know, into this person who is, who was, who was a fraud, who was a pretendian. And, um, and they still, they still backed him until, you know, the day he died. And so, um, so for us, as um, I work for the Minnesota Native Artists Alliance, uh, our biggest efforts, you know, from this last year, we respond to where we're needed and our, where we were needed this past year was to address appropriation in the arts. And so we started a campaign called Arts Back to protect Native arts. Um, and it was really to work with galleries and institution institution to become compliant in compliance with um, our federal law, the Indian Arts and Crafts Act. And you're probably asking yourself, like, what is the Indian Arts and Crafts Act? And it was created in 1990. It basically is a federal policy. And what the whole meaning behind it is that it's a truth and advertising law that prohibits misrepresentation in the marketing of Indian art and craft products within the United States. It is illegal to offer or display for sale or sell any art uh, um, or craft product in a matter that falsely suggests it is um, Indian produce or an Indian product or that the product of a particular Indian or Indian tribe or Indian arts and crafts organizations. There are definite loopholes. Um, today, you can go into stores much like um, Prairie's Edge in Rapid City, South Dakota, and you will see full-on beaded regalia dresses and war bonnets and pipes and all of that. And they will have a little picture of a white person that's saying Bill is from Sturgis, South Dakota and da-da-da-da-da. And and and, but mm. Bill is protected by this policy because Bill is not saying that he's Native. And so that's the loophole mm. is that if you are claiming like um it, like these other people that I, you know, just mentioned um where you mess up is if you misrepresent yourself and say you're native you can be a joe schmo and say hey i like native art so i'm going to reproduce it and i'm i'm just me i'm not native but this is where i'm going to make a buck that is that's legal and you'd be allowed to continue to do to do that yes so what about the the girl in um, Madison, uh, what is her name, Kayla Claire, who bought stuff off Etsy from um, bought stuff off Etsy from actual indigenous artists and then sold them as if she made them as an indigenous artist? Is that a loophole? Because no, it actually so was made by indigenous not. artists, right? No, because she um, mis still re misrepresented herself and said mm. that she was mm -hmm. um, Anishinaabe from Wisconsin. So even though she was buying Native art and repurposing it, she was still, that money didn't go to that artist. That money went to herself. And so she would still be in trouble. 
Um, there's, it can, so for the first time violation of this act, an individual can face civil or criminal penalties up to $250,000 of a fine or five year prison term or both. If a business violates this act, it can, they can face, um, civil penalties or can be prosecuted and fined up to a million dollars. And so there's, and there's also a daily, like once an organization or gallery or institution is notified that, um, they have violated the act, I think it's like a penalty, a daily penalty for if they don't, if they don't correct it. So that's mm. the loophole. Like there, there's businesses that definitely like Etsy today, you can go on there and you'll see non-native, um, artists making keychains. I know like I like to go on Etsy because there are definitely, there are native, um, artists on there that I support and I've bought many things. Um, but if you do go on there, I've seen like, um, for instance, I, I came across, I was trying to find, I like, I like keychains beaded keychains and I went on there and found a native keychain that was beaded and I asked them you know for the identity like are you native like I'd like to support native artists and the woman said no I I sell these for my brother he learned how to um how to do beadwork in prison and from native people and now that he's out this is how he supplements his income and but they're all native inspired keychains um is that legal yeah because he's not pretending to he's not saying that he's of native descent is it right no it's 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 not right and i think that's what where we've come in society i think that's a hard part of being a native person is that prior to colonization and the imperialism of the united states we had our own judicial system and Currently today, there are 562 federally recognized tribes. That's not including the state recognized tribes. And that's not also not including um, the extinct tribes uh, in the U.S. So we had many different tribes. We all didn't speak the same language. We all didn't have the same belief systems. We, we were beautifully different in that, that that's wonderful. Um, and um, when it comes to these laws and, and how they've morphed and changed in the U.S., I like to say that we are still occupied. We're still occupied land. I do not say that I'm a United I don't like saying that I'm a United States citizen. I like to say that I'm a citizen of the Sistan Wapton Nation, um, the Sistan Wapton Oyate. Um, I would much rather have a passport through through my tribal government. If we ever got to that point, um, we do have federal recognition for our tribal IDs, but it's not like a, it's not like a passport. It doesn't operate like a passport. Um, so I guess for me, it, it, our ethics have changed and how they've changed is that we need a law to tell us when to stop. We just don't have, it's not hardwired in us anymore to say, this is not right. I'm not going to appropriate somebody's else, um, somebody else's story. I'm not going to appropriate their art. I'm not going to do any of that. Um, I think that's the, the hard, the hard part. You know, we have a global economy organized by, uh, selling and trading everything that makes humanity to be able to survive. And that happens um, consistently and it's rampant and it's 
dehumanizing in in every single aspect uh, from production to distribution and being able to escape that cycle requires an enormous amount of uh, recalibration that I think uh, many of us feel like sometimes hopeless uh, with with that, uh, like understanding how the rules continue to play against people in different ways. And in particular, um, like I, I, I don't speak for a whole community. I will say that in my experience as a Mexican person that was born in Mexico, raised in Mexico in an urban area uh, where I know that we were subject of nationalist projects in which colonization happened in a different way. And we were told that it didn't matter who you were, you were just Mexican. And that erased generationally a whole identity and um, identities and ways of ancestral being and original language and your original forms of organizing systems of, of life and sustenance that many of us didn't get to even know what where we are coming from. And I think that there is a particular hunger in, when folks that migrate from the man-made border come to the U.S. and and realize that there was post-colonization organization in tribal nations that were able to preserve all these traditions. And there there is ways that Mexican-Americans and Mexicans want to relate to that with like a romanticized history and like the, the romantic past that is continues to be today indigenous people's reality in Mexico in, in which people make a lot of mistakes and cause harm as Gracie was, was naming. The reality is that no country that was conquered for hundreds of years in Latin America was organized, it, it, it organized indigenous peoples through nations. And like I hear when folks here in like Mexican Americans say like the Mexican nation, that never existed. There was not a Mexican <laughs> nation. That is like people want to relate mm. to a similar concept of the North mm-hmm. part of the, of the colonized Americas to be able to relate to something, but it's predominantly something that we lost during the conquest 70% of um, actually wasn't 70%, 95% of history was destroyed during the Mexican uh, colonization by the Spanish. So we don't know enough. We know a lot because things were built on top of, uh, uh, of buildings and cities and whole civilizations, but we don't know enough. And I know, for example, that I did not grow in an indigenous community. My grandmother was not able to speak her original language. She was the first one that had to not speak her original language because she needed to speak English as they moved to an urban territory. And that creates an enormous kind of global disorientation in which I try to reorganize on things that give me peace. Um, and I know that a lot of that comes with pitfalls because none of this history and this nuance and this complexity is ever taught in schools or in places where we're supposed to uh, learn how not to be ignorant. 
the hunger of belonging can definitely cause harm, but the the self-harm of trying to appropriate something that just seems to be reachable is to not doing the hard work to figure out our global orientation as post-colonized people, displaced people that is still in this organized American economy continue to be deemed as subhuman and subjects to just work and production. Um, So there is a lot, this is why in my day job, many of our members and our leaders want to pass the ethnic studies bill. We want to learn that in schools from K through 12 as a mandatory part of graduation requirements, because that's the type of conversations that we need to have in a healthy multiracial society. Whether it is through, uh, I mean, like we are organized as a nation and regardless of those contours of validities of constitutionalities and whatnot, the cultural aspect of recuperating knowledge in the places that are supposed to help us discern knowledge is critical for our ability to have these very hard conversations and accountability from a humane and healthy place. Not comfortable, but it's still healthy and accountable. I think that's one of the best um, arguments that I've heard um, for ethnic studies because folks will often try to say, well, that's they go straight to just history, right? And I'm saying this as an ethnic studies major, right? Like it's 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 the it's the um this idea that folks from these communities, from our communities, are are coalescing the knowledge about what it means to be in that to be, not just the history of, which is an important piece, but but um, that you know it, w- the perspectives that we read that we engage in in ethnic studies tradition are curated from the very community that is the primary source and so it carries with it this the the the, the spirit the ethos um the specificity that you all have already spoken to um in some in some very important ways that's why it's separate it's not the same as a history class because you get much you get you get many more things. I also want to point out that that you all have put forward and deepened just you know my understanding of of you know pretendians. It, it, it's not just enough to say I'm going to pose as in order to benefit, but um, you've spoken to folks who um, whose parents have posed and therefore they've 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 had to deal with the the aftermath of that. Still harmful, still has harmful impact, um, but also you know it, it, this has me thinking again intersection of the lived experience and history. Uh, Don, you talk about the Dawes roles and and the Dawes Act where so many folks tried to benefit from 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 the the aftermath of that and a whole lot of folks who are who weren't connected to tribal communities try to jump onto those roles uh, again to try to take this this perceived benefit that was that was there. So we we've got years of this type of pretending going on. Um, even when we intersect the historical lens. Well, you know, um, <laughs> Gracie Gracie put so much out there, bits and pieces that we've had discussions on on previous counter stories. But 
within our community, it, it, you know, I kind of see it like a banana because as she was talking, there are intersections within, I think, all our communities that we sometimes have to peel back. Because as Gracie was talking, not only are individuals from outside our community exploiting things like our spiritual practices and and rituals, there are members within our community who do that same thing. So we, you know, we have to, you you have, and, and not only do you have to navigate that, but to get to what Emilia just brought up in terms of ethnic studies, you know, Gracie mentioned her grandmother. Well, my mother went to boarding school. So I'm a direct descendant of someone who went to boarding school and had that language and culture. I mean, when we asked our mother to teach us to speak Ojibwe, her response was, no, you need to learn English. Well, we were already speaking English, right? Now, she regretted that when she was older. But at that mm-hmm. time, that's what she was taught. So once we start to peel back those layers, I shared another time where where a bunch of us, individuals who work in our community, indigenous community, work for different organizations throughout Minneapolis and St. Paul, but in this case, it was St. Paul. We were trying to come up with a document that we could send to Ramsey County Social Services to explain to them what it is to be or what kinds of things constitute cultural um, teachings, cultural events, cultural things that we keep saying are important to our people. And we met on three or four different occasions, and we didn't come up with much of a list. And after and and I, I and after about the third time we we came together, I admitted at the table. I'm native, born and raised in the city, from a mother who was sent to boarding school. I'm tied to my community. I have attended powwows. I've attended a naming ceremony. I, you know, but beyond that, I couldn't tell you what our culture really was, right? Because many of us have been removed from that. What happened, however, is when I admitted that, everyone around that table was like dominoes because I could tell after three meetings, we weren't coming up with much. And that, so even though there's this perception that we have retained who we are and we have to an extent, right? Our language is becoming, Gracie, I notice uses, you know, certain phrases in her language to introduce herself. Well, I haven't, I have, haven't been able to do that, right? I was not taught. Now, I know certain, I know certain words in my language, but, you know, and now that I'm retired, I, I might try to learn it, but our, Ojibwe is hard. Indigenous languages is hard, especially when you coming from an, an from a framework of European 
educational, you know what I'm saying? Because that that's where my framework is coming from. But so when it comes to ethnic cultural studies, you know, it's important because we we have to put it together bits and pieces. And what's happening now is that the elders who had that knowledge, who still had the language, who still practice those ways, have walked on. They have walked on. And so there are, I think we have a few that are sprinkled throughout various nations throughout this, this country that may still have some of that and retain it. I mean, even when I think about art, in the, in the uh, 1969, or I think 6970, or I think, or 1970, there were about 15 of us Indigenous students that were selected to um, be guides for an Indian art form and tradition show that came to the Twin Cities. Part of it, part of the exhibit was at the Walker Arts Center, and the other part was at the 13th floor of the new IDS building, which was being built. But we were trained by, and I remember the folks behind it, it was Ron Libertas and and um, George Morrison and them were behind this. But as guides, what was seen as Indian art then were items that were created by our communities. Spoons, bowls, breastplates, they were... Art, you know, art, art was art form were were things that were created that were used by our community, right? Um, there were pictographs created that depicted stories. You know, that's how we got. There were pictographs of of uh, what what the U.S. called little bighorn, right? You know, George Custer and 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 that whole. That whole thing. There were pictographs that were drawn by different individuals that had that were there, but so even even when we look at Indian art, it has it has changed. It has morphed through the years, and so and I'm I'm just saying all that because Gracie brought up so much. Stay with me here when I try to process this out loud. Okay, because it seems like it's <laughs> something that is Come on, similar please. in all of our communities. <laughs> where we we very similar to you, Don, is like growing up, we were um not specifically discouraged, but really encouraged to uh learn English more than anything else, right? Because that's how you're gonna succeed in America. You're not gonna succeed by going around speaking monk to everybody, because that's what I did. There's stories that my parents always tell about. You know, um, kindergarten, we're in preschool, where I go around talk Hmong to everybody, and I just assumed everybody would talk Hmong back, right? And it was, I think, for my parents, they felt really embarrassed by that that I, you know, that they didn't prepare me for school, and so it was really, and so then you get to a certain age in high school or in college where they're like, why don't you speak better Hmong? And it's like, well, you know, we were not encouraged to because we needed to succeed, and then now. Our children, my nieces and nephews, don't speak a lick among. And my mom and my grandma can speak to them and they'll look at us and be like, what What do they just say? Right? So then we're kind of losing that generation 
Then there's like the next generation who's like between our generations who's suddenly very interested in Hmong history and, and Hmong art and want to learn a whole bunch. And so all the while, while we're learning how to live in two different cultures, not speaking the language, not understanding our ceremonies, right? Because there's a lot of ceremonies that happen. Our parents are like, just do it. Here's what you need to do. This is your duty. And we, why do we do this? Just do it. You have to go do it. So we don't know why we're doing anything. But then there are these other folks outside of our community. I mean, there are Mormons who came door to door who knew better Hmong than we did. <laughs> in, in Thailand, I met white people who were like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm here doing all this research on Hmong language. I'm like, that's awesome. I had to, like, apply for 20 grants to come here for a week, you know, just to be able to afford to come here and, like, stay with my people. And you're here, like, living here for a year studying my people. And that's how, I mean, maybe that's why people start believing that they are of this other culture is because they have that opportunity to know more about our culture than we do. So I, 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 I love the altruism white supremacy, there. Like, okay. Thank you. Thank you, Gracie. <laughs> Cause I know yeah, please usually yeah. the pessimist in the group, but I'm, I'm going to be the pessimist <laughs> in this one because there's a predatory nature to what Gracie laid out for us at the beginning. Right. I am. I, I, when I do when I pretend I am exploiting the lack of, of knowledge and understanding, like 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 part of the whole racial dolazol thing. But my ad, remember, she began her journey trying to impersonate being indigenous before yeah. she made her way over um, to to black space and had the nerve to criticize other black scholars <laughs> pretending herself. And so, like like, there's a predatory nature in here. Understand that that if we were to to uh, Amelia's point, if we were to have an ethnic studies-based knowledge, it'd be much harder for me to fake the funk in, 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 in many of these ways. I think there's a predatory thing to here. I, I see an opportunity to, to get something out of this, and I'm going to play on the fact that, the, uh, the, that, that our efforts, our I'm owning United States efforts to of erasure have created a, a a perfect scenario for folks to go in and exploit and benefit, right? Um, and I got and, and and keep in mind, right? There's 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 a, a mentality of the person who who's like, I'm going to take that and I'm not going to claim that I am native, but I'm still going to take it, right? That's that's problematic, but 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 even more to me, even more egregious, and this mirrors this line of you know we don't often talk about progressive or liberal racism. Right. There's a way in which I use mm -hmm. the right terminology, the right names and all these things. But I'm still carrying these negative mental models that are harmful in the long run. And so right. I, it, the, to me, I hear I hear I see and hear predator in this whole thing. Yeah. And I feel like I second the the, you know, that we need to have ethnic based education. But I also I guess as a native person, I also. I would hope that they would in this education that they would include, um, you know, native history and, and native rights because we are on native land. If we don't identify that, then we are just like our colonizers. You know, if we don't identify that we have this political status, then we are, we are, aren't um, paying respects to the land, to the protectors of this land. 
But with that being said, like, um, I think that the biggest place that I see that needs to be reached um, with that is understanding that there's a difference between fraud and there's a, there's a difference between fraud and there's a difference between somebody that's a, a tribal citizenship, that they have tribal citizenship because, and I take, and um, I don't necessarily want to put Star Tribune or any publication on blast, but recently Star Tribune wrote a whole article about a pretendian. And the hard part about that is that there were, there were POC writers on, on that were, that were writing this article. And because they were not coming from the native world, did not have that native lens, they felt like they had enough education to talk about native citizenship. And so when they started to address this pretendian that went after a substantial amount of money from the city of Minneapolis, um, they start, it started to get, it started to muddy the water when they brought up fraud and mixing up citizenship um, because what it what that means and, and I'll explain it a little bit more is that there's a person that's pretending to be native but they have no no connection to native ancestry. Then there's this other part where we talk about adoption, families that like, cause that's a, that's kind of like the, the native thing is that you take on, if you have relations with somebody that you just feel this connection, then you take them on as, as, um, a, re- a relative. But that doesn't mean that this person is able, then able to go in and pretend that they're native. They can be from other, backgrounds they could you know not be native um but it doesn't mean that then that gives them the leeway to do and e- express however they want or or like given a pass to tell our histories um or that like we're talking about blood quantum because we are the only group in the United States that goes by blood quantum the and the the service that oversees us is the Bureau of Indian Affairs which also um manages the Bureau of Land um you, the Bureau of Land and Water and so for us it we have a different status where they're wanting us to they they force that onto us to identify blood quantum there are there are um places like the Cherokee Nation that does the Dawes and that's by descendancy so but that's where our agency lies and our sovereignty is if our own tribal governments um ratify that they only want to go by descendancy or that they go by this blood quantum um, but it was something that was forced upon us and so with that being said um I feel like that's kind of like when we start to get what I see is that when we start to get people that start to back what's happening, if there's a pretending that comes in, there's still this like, I don't understand what blood quantum is. I don't understand what this means. Like this family, this native family took in this person and ad- adopted them. Um, I think the hard part of being about being native too is that when uh, traditionally when you took in somebody like um you know children that were orphaned into a family whatever the mother is that's what the child is that that's their first teacher um people that want to use that that connection that connection to that family in exploitative ways where it's not reciprocal to the family um 
it, it, it kind of takes away from those situations where there are, um, I know a native woman that a Blackfoot native woman that has three, three non-native children that she, that she adopted as orphans and she raised them in, in her way, in her, the Blackfoot nation way. Um, but they can't be enrolled. And, but these children, they're now in their twenties. They, I've known them since they're little, little people. Um, they, they have no aspirations to exploit their mother's way. That's exploiting their mother. Though those situations are um, are different. They're not like the ones that have been more publicly known. But I feel like that's kind of like where it goes in. And I and I guess that's kind of like filling the need basis where we actually do need to have native writers for Star Tribune. At one point, we used to. There used to be a Native writers um, group there that was founded by Melvin Lee, um, Melvin Lee Houston from Santee, Nebraska, who was Dakota. And his whole objective was you need to be from that community. That's like somebody that's non, non-Black or non-Mong and writing this whole expose in the Star Tribune that's reaching, reaching all these people that pretty much changes their, their, their idea of what's really going on. That needs to change because then how can you write on some about a certain community when you're either don't know what, what you're writing about. And you can be, I think the thing for like us that I've always been taught is you can still be a native person and still do harm on your community. And we call that the disease of the mind. You can still, you know, in the news this week was Nathan Chasing Horse, who, who is native and who had been ex- ex- exploiting, um, young women. And is going to be standing trial like right now will be standing trial and the what he has done since the early 2000 is coming to light. But you can still be native. And so for us, we still see say that's the disease of the mind. You can still do harm onto your own community. You um, I like that Don brought up Walker um, because I feel like these institutions need to need to because institutions um both art and and history museums they come from a world of um of anthropology they come from a world of collecting from other cultures they come from this this space um of white cis males and and so now they're still they're trying to change it but sometimes it's harder to change policies sometimes it's harder to change practices and I guess with the Walker, um, we had Sam Durant, who was uh, who was a white male, white cis male, that created a scaffold, um, a hanging scaffold at the Walker Sculpture uh, Park, and that was depicting eight different stories: Native and Black and white um, white women. I guess histories of like the first uh, white female to be hung in the U.S. historically. Um, um, black, black hangings and also the Dakota 38, um, hanging in Mankato. And so this was an art piece that was, that they paid millions for. I, and, um, and to this day, because I don't, I don't really associate with Walker, I can be a little bit, um, critical, but like they did pay a native, Dakota woman to create a sculpture, but she did not get anything close to a million dollars for her sculpture to be included into that sculpture part. And so I guess like things like that, um, those reparations still need to be had. 
Um, that edu- we still need to be educated. We still need to, um, educate each other. I, I, I feel like, um, the day that I'm needed, I mean, in the Hmong community to be an ally, I hope that I'm there and I hope I make the right decisions to, to be a good relative, to be in it, to be a good uh, community member and, and to be protective. Um, it's the same thing for any community that, that I hope that I, I, um, I think that's the hard part about it is like, I think all of us come from different backgrounds where histories aren't identified and where we've spent a whole lot of time, even now in this podcast, when we're talking about our histories, because it's not worldly known, you know, it's not widely known. And most of us will learn this in, in college, you know, and it's not, it's like, a um, extracurricular, you know, it's something that's not necessarily required. And what we're asking is that, you know, people that live here, um, start to be educated in this. And it's not that they have to go to college to understand this, that they're educated from K through 12. So they under, so we all understand each other. I think that's, um, a best practice, but I feel like it's really hard. Um, I can only speak to my experience being a native woman, and having to talk about Minnesota history, having to talk about the Dakota 38, because you're taking a lot of, you're, you're doing the work. And so oftentimes when I'm asked to do any sort of speaking or lectures, I'll invite people to Google it. Like I'll just say, I can't talk about this right now, but I would suggest you Google it and do your own research because we've had to do that. We've had to learn complicated names where while you guys don't want to say our, our language and our words, we've had to learn how to say Theodore. Yeah, we've had to learn how to say Benjamin. We've had to say Elizabeth. If you can do your own research on COVID, you can do research on the people that you share community with. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I have to bring this up just just to get a just just to get a piece in there because we we've talked about a whole lot of methods of pretending. Um, I think there is a piece to this that we will have to do another show on, but um, where I I want to and, and in order to try to seem less part of dominant culture, less guilty pity, field, shameful, whatever it is, I then go to DNA and I see a little point zero 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 something percent of something. And then I go ahead and claim it and buy the clothes and put on the whole thing just because I don't want to, <laughs> as I said, I'm bringing some of this filled with nuance and stuff like that. But there's, there's this compulsion to want to be quote unquote different in dominant mm-hmm. cultural space, and so I will, I will grab on to a, a, a distant ancestor who's from uh, Guatemala, and and be able to and try to rewrite my whole cultural center and frame, knowing nothing and not having grown up and been connected to that community at all, but then want to put that on because I have some kind of claim or marker. It just happened today. I'm in a conversation. Um, in a group of black males about black history and how it imper- and, 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 and it comes through us and it's open to everybody there but I had a, a, a white person who who joined the conversation and wanted to say well you know and I look back in my DNA and I'm, I'm, I'm part black too and I was like great great uh, cool and one of the participants was like uh, he said I didn't see you at the cookout and we laughed about it <laughs> 
<laughs> but under there was this kernel of truth. And so I, how how much of what we've been talking about connects to to this need for certain folks? And it's not just white folks. Uh, I, I, I'm from a community that everybody and their mama try to try to claim native heritage largely around hair and eyes and 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 and, and other things that try to quote make you feel some kind of better about your blackness but but <laughs> this is also in the mix Anthony in the black community I think oft, most times when I hear black folks claiming to be Indian it's blackfoot and I could never I could never understand the relation because the I'm Blackfoot, sorry that's funny right there but that's the, hilarious but the Blackfoot are kind of further out west and most yep. most black people from the east and the south but exactly they but there's that they are always Blackfoot um, but no that's deep because that was also on my mind because with these DNA tests right and I've commented I've I've commented on previous counter stories but with those DNA tests now. People are finding out that, you know, oh, gee, I've got this percentage of, and I forget what they call it, Mesoamerican Indian or whatever. There's different categories. My sister took one. and But at any rate, it reminds me of the 50s, 60s, and 70s where I, I and I may have to look this up, but there were at least 30 or 40 percent of the white fire department in Minneapolis that were Indian because they got preference on hiring if they checked that box. Mm. So it goes deeper than just, mm. you know, I mean, so, so, um, and I remember, I remember that when it came out that a lot of folks would check that box because what are they, what are they going to check? Right. I mean, how do they check that? And now with these DNA tests, we're going to have folks all over the place and, and, and uh, who are now black, indigenous, whatever. And they may be looking right. I mean, the, the problem with the DNA test is that it tells you that blood percentage, but it doesn't tell you which which group you're from, which tribe, which which, you know, cultural group you actually are from. So. It's only going to compound and confuse things, right? Let's also remember how inaccurate those tests are, okay? Because they had like zero zero, um, inventory of Asian, South Asian DNA. So like anybody who knew their maternal grandma and paternal grandma were from Southeast Asia got a free test. We all got free tests because they just, they didn't have the data. So that alone, you know, it's not it's not 100% yeah. sure because they themselves don't even have the data, right? So, I mean, it, it brings me back to, like, the discussion that we had in Conister's previously about um, admissions, um, affirmative action. Yeah, college admissions. College mm-hmm. admissions and people like, oh, wait, now I can claim that I'm biracial because, you know, my, my dad did a... 23 and me. I can I can claim all this now. 
And before folks lose their minds, the gist of that discussion was that there are many <laughs> points that you get in the Ivy League admission space, and the majority yes. of those points are privileged towards white folks. The 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 the, the minority category is only one little point <laughs> at the way that the folks used to do admissions. Right. So before folks try to jump off and all that stuff, there's not there's not this huge get to Gracie's point that she brought in earlier. This assumption that somehow just because you're native, you get this windfall of all this this extra stuff which just ain't the case yeah you get historical trauma exactly. <laughs> you get historical you trauma. get you get fear of white men like and and not wanting to drink in bars at night because you know you get all like hooray you get all of this stuff but i think i you get like our blood that pressure you, our stress yeah our, yeah you get yeah. diabetes <laughs> you get all of this stuff yay but i like that you brought up anthony about um, you know, the 23 and me and all of the stuff, it does, it's not accurate. It, they're mostly banking that information off of your family tree that you submit for your, your surname. And then it links you to other families. They're like, okay. So like I, I had an aunt, um, a, a complete aunt, a white aunt from my mom's side that had different dads and, my, my grandpa married a non-native woman, a white woman. And so they had white children and my aunt did the 23 and me. And, um, she found out that she did have native blood and it was from the Maima, the Maima tribe. Um, and they traced it all the way back. And then we found out that we had ancestry, um, to, uh, half, um, black and half Miami Indian, um, Angela Blue. She was the last fluent speaker of, of my tribe. And, and it was this whole thing. And so my aunt thought it was appropriate for her to go get enrolled because the Miami tribe had a descendancy, um, that was, that was how they did their enrollment was off a of descendancy. So if I wanted to disenroll my, from my tribe today, I could go and enroll in that, um, mm. to them because I'm a descendant, even though like it's way back there. I think that's where it's hard because this person um, who was like in her 60s by the time this happened had no connection. And this is speaking from a niece perception, had no connection to Native people. Um, I didn't really grow up with her, didn't have, she didn't have any sense of the life that we've lived, the stuff, the stuff that we've had to endure and had to overcome, didn't have any sort of um, American Indian studies in her background, nothing. It, it was just that she got enrolled. And I think those, sometimes that stuff can um, be hurtful because, you know, you're, you're taking on this, this whole, like, and it is, it feels like it's more or less from, for ego. Most of this stuff, the pretendians is mostly for ego. Like the people that I have known to, uh, before they were exposed to be pretendians and after, um, like Red Wolf Pulp, the man that I had explained earlier, this was somebody that came in, into the community and was just, flexing everything that he knew about being native. It was this, it was that, like there was these old stories. I heard this from an elder. I heard this from, you know, da, 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 da. And it, it was, um, it, it's mostly about the ego and it's, and that's kind of coming from, and at that point, you're just an anthropologist, you know, at that point, you're, you're not from the community mm -hmm. and you know, all this information, you're just an anthropologist at that point. And so I guess, 
the the that I think that's the hard part. And I, I always say this to other fellow natives is that some some of them will say, um, oh, I'm full blood. I'm like 100% native. Like my, my biological father is full blood, but I don't say that I'm, that my dad is a full blood only because that is non-existent. Um, mo- our biggest practice within our community is that we had to marry with, um, outside of our tribe. There are people like the Anishinaabe people that have a clan system and they're able to track who their relatives are. Our best practice, we didn't have that, is that we never married within our tribe just because of those bloodlines. Sometimes you'll know who Mm. your family is and sometimes you won't. You know, it's more, it's cautionary now. Like my husband today is Pueblo, you know, from the Southwest. He's Southwest native. And so I married without, of course, it was more than that. You know, he caught my eye and whatnot. Um, but, you know, there it was just the best. I like how best. you snuck that in there. That's what's yeah, up. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he, like, had, <laughs> he, had, he had the right driver's in license. In case he listens. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't just, I wasn't hey, just baby. like looking hey. like. Hey, baby, check out my driver's license. Yeah, you're not from Minnesota? Cool. Like, let's talk. You're not my cousin. <laughs> But like, it's those sort of practices. So like, when I think about my great grandmother who was full blood, I don't look at her as a full blood because she was probably Northern Cheyenne. She was probably Blackfoot in in there because that's way up in our area. Um, she might have been from, um, she might, she might have been from, uh, she might have been Crow. She might have been Grovan. She might have been, a bunch of other tribes because that it wasn't just our practice today. It was historically, you know, and so I guess like that's non-existent. So I don't even like, I don't even like saying full blood. Every time you talk, you bring up a whole nother <laughs> can of worms. You got to come back. I mean, we, you, we you do, do have to come two. back because I, I'm serious because I mean, just, just to have that, the, a discussion on what you just brought up, you know, I mean, that relates, I think, to every one of us in, in counter stories in the communities we come from. And so, because yes. we, we really have to mine deeper in terms of what that means, full blood, right? For because sure. does it mean you're just full blooded from one tribe? You're 100% indigenous. But a lot of that happened, you know, a lot of that happened also because of federal policies uh, in the Relocation Act when they spread us outside our reservations and put us in metropolitan cities. People begin to intermarry and they're 100 percent Indian, but can't enroll anywhere. I mean, that's another I mean, you just took this to another whole discussion that we need to have. But I think we're we're well over our time, aren't we? Yeah, I don't mean to laugh, but it just reminds me of like when the first white guy came into our family and my mom was like, okay, so what is he? And I said, white. But like, what? Like German? And I'm just like, well, he's a little bit of German and English and there's some Irish. And mom's like, I, I, you know, okay, so so white. Okay, fine. I get it. So white. You know, so it's just like, it's so funny. Like <laughs> yeah. we, their kids can't claim to be 100 anything at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think any of us can. Yeah. I always think about Conan O'Brien. Like he was uh, doing this genealogy thing on his show and the genealogist said, 
Conan, you're the first Irish that I've ever, 100% Irish that I've ever, you know, got the privilege to go. And he said, is that good or bad? And the genealogist was like, that's not good. That's like incest. You know, there's only so far <laughs> you can go back. And so Dang. Conan O'Brien was like, okay, so now we're saying I'm like come from ancestry. So yeah, like I, I mean, everybody has their teachings that we, yeah. our best practice is whatever your mother is, you are, that's, that's your number mm. one teacher. You know, if, and for me, my, my dad was Lakota, but my mother was Dakota. So I am, I identify as a Dakota woman. This is, this is who I choose to be. I can pay lineage and homage to Angela Blue from, you know, the Miami and Black Nation, but I can't because I, I never lived it. But I guess like that, that it is a can of worms. It, it really does go yeah. back there. But I think the good thing about being here today is that you can make that decision. You can decide mm -hmm. if you want to go back into that. You know, I don't think any of those communities would expect, accept me, but I feel like you can, you can decide what it is in that connection to that community and maybe creating something for the future. I'm just wrestling with how, what, what are the, the conditions in which we're going to have to wrestle with this, um, with this dynamics and, um, and like introducing also another uh, another noun that makes me think about appropriation, but like a more deliberate and predatory appropriation. That is um, the noun is uh, usurpator or usurpation when someone deliberately uh, attempts to pretend. It's, it's not just pretending. There is a reason, and the reason mm -hmm. is access to resources, power, uh, uh, or capital. And as long as we live in an economy where our traditions, our resources, or the ways of living are uh, commodified, mm -hmm. we are going to continue to be pitted against each other. And we have like a, a responsibility to become um, more sophisticated in the way that we build relationships across communities and understand what are the implications in uh, the the projected twenty forty something where we're gonna gonna be a majority people of color and mixed um, interracial and interracial communities, and how the powers that be, the one percent, are going to reorganize the economy so what we can so that what we preserve becomes mm -hmm. commodified for their for their personal in particular gain. And those are questions that give me a lot of curiosity and it's in a specific, um, when we were having a conversation, when Gracie mentioned about healing and medicine, um, that is becoming more and more um, like commodified. That's the word that I continue to find in my heart and in my brain. It's the commodification of our ability to heal ourselves in relationship with our environment and with relationship with the elements that we live. Um, I think it is it is uh, super important to continue to wrestle with that. And I don't have answers. I think I have more questions. Um, and I think it is important to know that 
that dialogue can continue to happen in our communities as a, as a legacy that we didn't have everything figured out, but that we were having dialogues to be able to, to relate with us in a different way than the white supremacy compositions wants us to be contesting and combating each other. So um, I'm very grateful for all the amount of knowledge that was shared in the space. Uh, I am I am very grateful for the amount of internal, uh, spiritual knowledge, uh, emotional and spiritual capacity that this conversation brought to me. Um, and as somebody that was not born on this side of the border, um, I know that there is an important recognition of building relationships in the place that you live and continue to preserve uh, life and the environment of the place that you live. And, and having those values, um, I think, allows us to, to not be harmful for to our neighbors um, uh, as, as we are right now. So I'm just very grateful uh, for the conversation. And uh, and every time I, I've joined you guys, I, I listen and I learn more. And like I probably have to write in my diary all that I, everything that I learned today. I want to thank everybody here for joining us. We'll have to have you both back on. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, Counterstories producer and vice president of programming at Ampers. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Malax Band of Ojibwe Indians. And our guest host, Emilia Gonzalez Avalos. An immigrant to Minnesota. And our special guest. Gracie Horn, uh, Dakota artist based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks for joining us. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. Oh.